Bibles to the book of Genesis. That is where my Bible is open to this morning, the book of Genesis. And I would encourage you to, to join me there and to follow along as we spend some time in God's Word this, this morning. That is the purpose of this part of our service is devoted to God's Word and to the message uh, and truth that it brings to us. It is so very good to be here this morning, and it's good to be here this morning as part of a whole. I say that as, as I am so thankful that the rest of my family is able to join me. Um, it's felt like a very large part of my life was missing, and even though I, many of you were very hospitable to me, taking me out, uh, for, I've been taken out for lunch, and, and been welcomed into homes for dinner, and, and, and I appreciate that hospitality so very much, um, but it's just... It can't replace the feeling of having my family back with me uh, today, so I'm so very thankful for that. I'm also very thankful for our visitors that are here with us this, uh, this morning. I, it is very good to, to, to see you, and I hope that you realize that you are our, our very special guest here this morning. So if, uh, if you have an opportunity to hang around after services, let us get to know you a little bit better. And if you haven't already done so, take out a, uh, a card from the back of your pew and just fill that out. Drop that uh, either with one of the men here or hand it to me after services. That way we can have a record of your attendance for being here with us. In 2014, in 2014, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics released a report. And in that report, there was a, a very shocking historical fact that was revealed about marriage in the U.S., for the first time since 1976, that is when such information began being tracked, for the first time since 1976, the number of single adults outweighed the number of married adults. An adult here meaning anyone over the age of 16. This was the first time uh, since 1976 that this has happened. In, the, in that year, the number was 37%. There were 37% single adults to 63 uh, no, six, yeah, 63 uh, married adults. But over the past several years, that number has begun to climb. In fact, starting the very next year, 1977, that number started to go up. And in 2014, it finally reached the halfway point and creeped over into 50.2%. And that number is expected to continue to rise. As this report, uh, or, or the, the news article this came from, quoted, they said that that number is projected to climb as Americans and people the world over experiment with new ways to organize their lives and their relationships. For those that do fall within that, that married uh, uh, percentage, over 40% of those marriages will end in divorce. Of that, of that 40%, more than uh, 25% will commit adultery. And over half of all first marriages in the U.S. alone are marriages that are preceded by cohabitation. That is the living together uh, before marriage. Looking at these st statistics, it's obvious that something in marriage here in America and something in marriage around the world is needed. There's something needed in marriage, but what is that? For some, the answer to that question is a new spouse. Things aren't going well in my marriage, so I need a new spouse. I, I just can't love this, my spouse any longer. But did you know this? The divorce rate for the second marriage is actually higher than divorce rates for the first marriage at 60%. Uh, for, for the second marriage. Most people, therefore, they don't need a new understanding really about what marriage is. They don't need an understanding about marriage at all. What they need is to understand that their marriages need them. For many, there's not a need for a new spouse. There's a need for a new marriage. 
Now what we have looked at in the past has been the sanctity of marriage. How marriage is something that is holy, it is sacred, it is set apart, an institution set apart by God for man and for woman, and it is set apart for life. We have also seen how our marriages are designed to have a spiritual intimacy to them that draws us closer together by drawing us closer to God. But the question we want to look at this morning, the question we want to look at this morning is this, what do we need from marriage? What do we need for marriage? That's the question I want to examine this morning. To begin at that, I want to look at the first marriage ever. We'll look at the, the genesis of marriage, if you will, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Here we read, Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the creatures and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused God, excuse me. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What I want to notice from this passage as we read through this, and we're going to read through several passages. Most of them I'm going to put on the board. We have a lot to cover this morning, so so I'm going to try to go through this rather quickly. But but what we need to understand is that there was a need in the beginning. And what needs might God have desired to fulfill through marriage? What needs might He have been trying to seek to fulfill in marriage? Maybe we can close our eyes and, and picture ourselves in Adam's place or... Or maybe for an, another thought experience, we could, as, as ladies, we could close ourselves and picture, picture yourself in Eve's place as if she was the only person on the face of the earth. But we picture ourselves in a place where we are the only human being on the face of the earth. And it's before, uh, at the beginning of creation, and we might see that some very obvious needs pop up rather quickly. When I, when I kind of done this, when I, when I sat back and I thought, what, what needs might Kyle Blevins have? If I was the only person on the face of the earth. Well, the first one from, in my mind that comes up is a need to share. I have a very real need to share. Share thoughts and conversations. Share passions. Humans have that need built into them, this feeling to share. Now, oftentimes this need is suppressed by selfishness. In our everyday and day lives, a lot of times we suppress that need a little bit. But when you take, ourselves, when you take people away from, from society... You know, you've seen some of, uh, maybe you've read accounts or you've watched documentaries of people who've spent a great deal of time alone. Maybe they were stranded in the wilderness. Maybe they were uh, in, a, in a hostage situation like a POW camp or some way where they were put into an isolated exper- uh, uh, scenario. One thing that is rather similar in all these many different cases, rather similar in all these different cases that they missed being able to talk to people. They missed being able to listen to people. They would have loved to have had that. That's something that that just kind of popped into my mind as I thought about this. But whatever the need that we might surmise as we think about these things, the Bible tells us that it was because of aloneness that God desired to fulfill. He desired to fulfill this aloneness because there was no creature for man. Now the word that's used here for alone comes from a Hebrew word. And out of all the Hebrew words that there are that are so difficult to pronounce, this is my favorite Hebrew word because it's so easy to pronounce. The Hebrew word for alone is bad. That is how it's pronounced, that is how it is written, is the word bad. And they talk about that, that literally meant something to them. It meant that something was incomplete. 
When they would say something was bad, they were talking about something uh, being, you know, when man is alone, they were saying that he was incomplete. There was something missing in his life. And yet we know Adam was not alone in the sense that, that nothing else inhabited the earth with him. We read that every creature upon the face of the earth, every creature was brought to him and he named them. He interacted with them. But yet in verse 20, none of them were found suitable. Man was a part of a whole. And that whole was incomplete. So it's important for us to remember that God created man, and God created man with needs. We talked about this last Sunday. He had a need for intimacy. We talked about that. But He created man with needs, and those needs in and of themselves are not evil. If we turn back just a little bit to Genesis chapter 1 and read in verse 31, He said right at the very end of, the, of, of chapter 1, God saw, that he had all, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. He saw all that he created and he saw that it was very good. He looked down on man and he saw that, that what he had created was exactly what he intended to create. So that need for intimacy is a need that's given by God. It's a good thing. But we need to really step back and understand exactly what intimacy is. <clears throat> intimacy is a process in which two people who care for one another share with one another as freely as humanly possible in the exchange of thoughts, feelings, and actions. Many times we like to focus on that last part. When we think of intimacy, we say well, intimacy is actions. It's actionable. But that's the miss, that's the miss actually, the bigger part of intimacy. That's only a small part of intimacy. So again, intimacy is the process of sharing thoughts, feelings, and actions, and it's marked by a mutual sense of acceptance, commitment, tenderness, and trust. Did you notice that? So, so for us to have intimacy, we can't be intimate with someone who doesn't want to be intimate with us. You know, we talked about intimacy and sharing thoughts and feelings and actions. When somebody comes up to you and just starts blabbering out all their thoughts and their feelings, you can't, sometimes you can't have that intimacy with them because you think, whoa, I don't want to hear all that. I, I, we're, not, we're not quite there. We don't have that relationship yet. If you go up and start touching people, putting your arm around them, hugging people at Walmart, they're probably going to maybe push you back and say, hey, we're, we don't have that sort of relationship because you can't have intimacy with someone that doesn't want to be intimate with you. And so we look back to Adam and we see that he had a need, but there was no one there to, to meet that need. There was no one there to share that intimacy with him. <clears throat> God had created all the animals on the earth, but none were found suitable to satisfy that need. So when we read about in verse 18, is God determining for man to have a helper suitable for him or a help me. You know, Jim, uh, Jim Hardy in our gospel meeting talked about that word helper. It comes from the word easer. He did an excellent job describing how that is a, a source of, of help. Uh, and it's the same word that's used oftentimes to describe God in other places in the Bible. God was wanting to give man someone to help him. But then the second part of that word is really important to understand well. In some translations it says a help meet. A helper that is meet to Adam. And as the New American Standard says, suitable. Someone who is suitable uh, to, to Adam. And that word, the, the Hebrew word there means something that is corresponding to. A counterpart, if you will. Woman completed man. And man completed woman. This was demonstrated by Adam's words when he said after, after, uh, after God created Eve, he says, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And this was the need for marriage in the, from the very beginning. I think many people still see this today but I'm afraid that they only see it on the peripheral vision. Whenever they look at marriage, it's not at the core of their marriage. 
They do not see marriage as God's institution to complete His creation in man and woman. And so we picture this for a moment. A couple that admits we have a need for one another. Maybe that's done in dating. Maybe that's done at the wedding ceremony. But they admit that they have a need for one another and they admit that they have the ability to fulfill that need. But then something happens in the, relation, in the relationship. Maybe a crisis is, is involved. Something is introduced into that relationship. And instead of taking action, instead of coming together and expressing their needs and working together to solve that crisis, there's a growing apart. There's a separation. And we hear statements like, I don't love him anymore. I don't need her anymore. In times like that, we need to turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, and consider what, what Paul wrote to the Ephesians here. <clears throat> wrote directly to speaking to the church, but in Ephesians chapter 4, and in verse 15, we read this, But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. Do you know, do you know what that's saying? When we step back and we really boil that down, Paul was telling the Ephesians, Paul is telling us, we need to grow up. We need to mature in Christ. And that is needed in the church. That is needed in our personal lives. But that is really needed in our marriages. We need to grow up. We need to speak the truth to one another and to do so in love. So when problems arise, spouses who see that their marriage is, is there to complete God's creation, it is there to fulfill the needs that each one has, they will not alienate themselves from one another. Rather, they come together and they are mature and they speak to one another in love the needs that they have. So here's a question for you. Here, we'll get a little personal here. A thought question for you. Does your spouse know why you need them? Does your spouse know why you need them? Or do they know what needs you have? You know, sometimes when we think about that, does my spouse really know what, what she, uh, I need from her? Or let's flip it around. Do I know what my spouse needs from me? Do I know those needs, what they are, how to fulfill them? A lot of times when we ask this question, when this question is asked to couples, they have no idea how to answer that question. That's not something that has really been set down and talked about. And so I want to consider this for a minute. There are ways that you need your spouse more so than anybody else. One of the first ways I want to consider is you need your spouse for a clear vision of your spouse, of yourself. Your spouse can give you an honest and a balanced viewpoint of you and do so when you need it the very most. Over in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one to his, in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Here in the letter to the Galatians, Paul says that we have a responsibility to restore those who are caught in a trespass. We have that responsibility carried over as, as individuals to our brothers and sisters in Christ. We have that responsibility to our spouses as well. More so with them than maybe anybody else. To when we see them, to restore them. And James chapter 5 verses 19 through 20 tells us how imperative this is. It says, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. When you need it the most, your spouse should be able to give you and you need them to be able to give you a clear vision of yourself. And who else should be able to do this? To give you a more honest perspective when you need it and to do so by and still offering acceptance. 
acceptance of you, even when they are coming to you and saying, these are areas that you need to work in, but I still love you. You're still my spouse. I'm still here to share this relationship with you. We also need our spouses to believe in us, even when others don't. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 6 says this, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members of one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, and it goes on there to talk about some of these gifts. But one thing that we notice in this passage, it tells us that we're a part of one body and we are to exercise the abilities that we have. Where did those abilities come from? Those abilities came from God. And that means that God knows what you are capable of. He knows what you can do and what you cannot do, even when others and even when yourself do not. One thing I've always loved about my wife, one thing I've always loved about Holly, is her unending desire to push me to do what she knows I can do. She pushes me and pushes me, and sometimes sometimes it's things that I, I really just don't want to do. Sometimes it's, it's uh, something around the house that, that she just knows I can do it, and it will look good, and she's like, Kyle, you need to do this. And, and I, I, I usually balk at that a little bit because I'm, I can be lazy at times. But then I get around to it and then and it looks good and I'm, I'm so glad that you pushed me to do that. I have to be careful because now she might push me to do more things. But she also pushed me to begin preaching. When I, when I told her myself over and over again, I, I can't do that, I don't want to do that, she was always right there saying, you can and you should. And you know what? I needed that. I needed her encouragement. I needed her to believe in me at a time when I didn't believe in myself. Because she makes me feel significant. She makes me feel needed. And she believes in me. That's something that both spouses need to bring to the marriage. They need to do for one another. You could say that the spouse, what you need from your spouse is to be your cheerleader at times. Whenever things are rough, to pick you up and to encourage you because they believe in you. You also need to know that your spouse, or you need your spouse to multiply your joys and to divide your sorrows. This goes back to that oneness that we are to experience in marriage. We are to be unified, uh, just as we are to be unified in the church. When we experience times of joy, we are to experience them together. You know, when we, if we were to flip back over to Galatians, or excuse me, to Genesis, uh, right after Adam spoke of, of Eve being bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh, we read that they were, the two were to become one. They were to, 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 to come together and to be unified. When we are unified... If one spouse experiences some sort of joy, we experience that joy with them. Maybe, maybe it's a spouse that gets a job or they get a raise. The other spouse doesn't look at that and say, well, I've been trying to get a new job for, for six years and it's not happened. My boss just doesn't care for me. I'm, I'm just going to be Debbie Downer over here. What's that spouse that just got the job going to do? They're going to say, well, I kind of wish I hadn't even told you. I hadn't sh- wish I hadn't shared this with you. I'll go share this with my buddies, with people that are actually going to enjoy this for me. We need, to be, we need to be in sharing in that joy together. And we really like that part. For the most part, you, we look at that and think, well, that's, that's kind of silly. Everybody likes to be happy. Everybody likes to joy, uh, be joyful together. But that also means the flip side of that is true as well. We need to endure sorrows together. And that's, not, that's the part that gets kind of dirty and gets uh, a little bit sacrificial because we don't really want to do that. We don't want to hurt the way our spouses might be hurting. 
But we need to be a part of that. We need to get in there and, and we need to share in that pain. And then we need to let them know that the pain they are feeling is not a pain that's felt alone. And that way, whenever they know that their pain is being shared with someone else, they can see that their pain is being divided. We also see, that's from 1 Corinthians 12, 26. If one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. We also see that our spouses, uh, we need our spouses to raise healthy children. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 2 through 4 says this. It reminds us, children are to obey their parents, uh, saying, Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It reminds us that children are to obey their parents so that it may be well with them. They may live long on the earth. There is a very physical side to this application. A physical health that is, being, that is being talked about here. Whenever children are obeying their parents, they're told to obey them because they have the best interests in mind. And there's a need for that in the marriage. To help one another raise physically healthy children. That should be something that, that the spouse can expect of the other spouse. I know Holly sometimes leaves the, me with the boys alone and, and she comes back and one of the most frustrating things I'm sure for her to hear is the answer to the question, what did you feed them? And I usually have to kind of look at my toes and shuffle my feet a little bit and say, well, we haven't eaten yet, but we, we played a lot of games and we were having a lot of fun and we just we lost track of time. She said, that's good, but you've got to feed them too. You've got to make sure you feed them, Kyle. We need to be able to, to have our children's best interests in mind. But we also need to realize that we are raising spiritually healthy children as well. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says that from childhood, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom, the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy is told, <clears throat> Timothy is told to remember the sacred writings made known to him. Remember that which is able to give wisdom that leads to salvation through, through faith in Christ Jesus. It is needed then as well um, for spouses to be sharing and raising children towards spiritual health, to be, to be working together. That's not a job that falls on just one spouse or the other, but they are working together. They have that need <clears throat> to share in that. And again, this is, all, this is all about intimacy. If you remember our definition, intimacy is sharing. Sharing of thoughts, feelings, actions, marked by mutual acceptance, commitment, tenderness, trust. All of these things that we're talking about, our needs from our spouse, are our needs in which we are fulfilling that need for intimacy. So regardless then of what your, your spouse needs from you, and in turn regardless of what you need from your spouse, we must remember that we accept them as they are. We accept them without conditions attached to that. That is true intimacy with them. But then that means... That means that we can't always have it our way. And you know, that flies in the face of everything that we have been taught today. Society espouses over and over and over again that you can do things how you want to do them. You can be with whoever you want to be. You can marry whoever you want to marry. And you can desire that your spouse treats you how you expect to be treated. This is seen from outside and this is seen from within the church. And sometimes it is when we perceive that things are not what they should be it's at this point that we typically start to say, we need to work on our marriage. It's time for us to start working on our marriage. But all too often, that phrase really means, it's time for me to work on you. It's time for me to work on my spouse. It's time for me to fix the problems that my spouse has. Maybe you've heard, or maybe you've even said some of these phrases. Maybe you've heard, why doesn't she or he, why don't they just understand that I need 
blank. I need something. Uh, if they would just only blank, if they would only do this, this, or this, or all I want them to do is this, why aren't they doing their part? When these questions arise, the typical conclusion is that the, the husband or the wife, they simply just don't understand what's going on. And when this conclusion, uh, or when this continues, the spouse will oftentimes get dissatisfied. They will become bitter, fearful, maybe hurt or lonely or even resentful or frustrated. But I want you to know that all of those feelings, all those emotions, they point back to one very big, very real problem. And that's selfishness. That's selfishness. We need to combat that by first, before looking at all the things that we need from our spouse, we need to realize that we have a much bigger need for God. Turn over to Matthew chapter 19 with me. Matthew, Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 24. <clears throat> Here in this passage we have the, the parable of the rich young ruler. In Matthew 19, verses 16 through 24. It says, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All of these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now maybe you're thinking, as we've read that, you're thinking, Kyle, what what exactly does that passage have to do with marriage? The rich young ruler, difficulty of rich men getting into heaven, what exactly does that have to do with with marriage. And, and if you're just not making that connection, that's okay because there really isn't a connection to the parable of the rich young ruler and marriage. But there is something here that is very interesting to me. What is the question he asks Jesus? He says, what am I lacking? The word lack means to fall short. It means to come too late. It means to suffer need or to be in want of. This young man was asking Jesus, in what way am I still less than what I need to be to enter heaven? Haven't we all felt that same way at some point in our marriage? Have we ever felt like, you know, maybe there's something missing? And how nice would it be if we could sit at the feet of the Lord and just say, Jesus, what is my marriage lacking? We go to church together. We work hard. We are good people but there is still something that is needed in our marriage. What is it? What is lacking? In Hebrews 11, verse 6, that goes on to tell us that to be pleasing to God, we are to have faith. It says, without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. Many today are displeasing to God because they don't seek Him. They don't believe that He will reward them for that, and they possibly don't even believe that He is to begin with. That is our first need. Our first need is God. To have an intimate relationship with God, we understand that there is a need for humility, there is a need for selflessness. Having a desire to be intimate with God will lead to greater intimacy with our spouses. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. 
But here's the thing, with God, you are never unfulfilled. Read Ephesians 3.20 with me. It says, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. We are never unfulfilled with God. He is able to do so much more than we can, than we can think of, we can dream of. And so as Christians, we never have to operate in emptiness. Colossians chapter 2, verses 9-10 through 10 says, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority. It tells us that in Christ we are full. We don't allow, or when we don't allow God to fulfill the needs that we have, we often become indifferent, we become rebellious, dissatisfied, even unbelieving. Again, these are very similar to the attitudes of a marriage where needs are not met. So if it is so imperative then for God to fill our life, and that relationship is a relationship built off humility and selflessness, maybe we should stop asking the question, what do I need from my marriage? And start asking the question, what does my marriage need from me? What do I need to put into my marriage? Because Satan is ever attacking the family. This is one of his best methods for driving souls away from God. By breaking down the family, and so the danger there is very real and is so close. We should always keep these truths in mind. The first one is that we need to remind ourselves every morning of the spiritual battle being waged for our marriage and for our home. Begin each day by asking ourselves, who's going to be at the center of my marriage? Is it going to be Christ or is it going to be me? Over in, first, in John chapter 3 and verse 30, that's what John the Baptist was, was saying to, to his disciples and they came and talked to him about Jesus and he said, He must increase, but I must decrease. Well, we have that same attitude. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, we see, Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. In Philippians 2 and verse 3, we see the need to esteem one another, as other translations put it. Esteem others above ourselves. And that's exactly what esteem means. To consider others more important than ourselves. So every day we should ask our spouses, what is it that you need from me? What can I do for you? And remember Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. We need to go every day and continually offer forgiveness to our spouses. Not be of the such that we're going to take that and we're going to hold on to that and we just, I can't forgive you for this one thing. We need to continually offer forgiveness to our spouses. Number four, we need to rely upon God's knowledge for marriage. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I think we typically want to do that. That passage looks really good to us. We say, yeah, we need to do that. We need to trust in God. We just need to lean on His understanding, not our own understanding. But then when it comes to things like what we read over in Ephesians chapter 5, and we're not going to read that today, but Ephesians 5 and the roles that God has placed in marriage, you know, the Proverbs 3 becomes a lot more difficult to do oftentimes. When it says, wives, you are to submit to your husbands. When it says, husbands, you are to give yourselves up for your wives. Surely there is a better way than that, we oftentimes think. We've got, to be, we've got to find a way that's more suitable to us and what we want. But Isaiah 55 tells us that our ways are not God's ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, he says our ways are not His ways, our thoughts are not His thoughts. In fact, it goes on to say that His ways and His thoughts are so very much higher than ours. It means they are so very much better than ours. We need to quit leaning on our understanding of what will make our marriage better and start relying upon God's understanding of what will make our marriage better. 
And then also Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 through 14. If you want to go ahead and turn over there. Colossians 3, verse 15 through 14 is a passage we should read. And we should read in view of our marriage. Colossians 3, starting in verse 5, it says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked, and then you were living in them, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and end all. And so notice verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. As we read this, it should be obvious what attitudes, what behaviors do not have a place in marriage and which ones do. We read about immorality, impurity, passion, which is lust, evil desire, that idea of longing for things that are forbidden, greed. How could these be a part of marriage, we might ask? But things such as pornography and adultery, they are running rampant in today's marriages. Movies and TV make light of lust, having impure intentions. In a recent Disney and Pixar film, the wife of, 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 a, of a husband is seen daydreaming about the exotic man that she could have had instead of her husband. This is seen as humorous. It's seen as, as normal. Greed is by far the easiest, easiest of these to fall into. Placing our own needs above others. Making them our idols. For many, we worship our desire to be happy. Our desire to have it our way rather than our desire to be holy. We're told to put aside anger and wrath and malice, slander, abusive speech, do not lie. Again, that's a big one in marriage. Instead, we're told to focus on certain behaviors, behaviors which we read in verses 12 through 14. It says to put on compassion, having a love that moves us to meet the needs of our mate. Kindness, so that even when our needs are not met, we will return that with moral excellency, not repaying evil with evil. Humility, recognizing that our marriage doesn't revolve around us. Gentleness and patience. Now, gentleness here doesn't mean that instead of smacking our husband with a frying pan, we're going to smother them with their pillow. Gentleness means that we are going to recognize that they are imperfect. And our spouses are imperfect. And we are in this for the long haul. Bearing with one another. The word bearing conveys the idea of a support beam, holding up a building even under great stress. Our marriages need this commitment to hold up to one another even when it's easier to tear down. Forgiving one another, as we've already looked at, but beyond all of this, we're told to put on love. It's very specific how it says that here, to put on love. You never hear of anyone falling out of compassion. You never hear of anyone falling out of kindness. Because these are decisions that they make. They decide, I'm going to be compassionate. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be gentle. And they may not be perfect in that, but they decide that is what's going to... to describe me and my character and my relationship with this person. But oftentimes we hear of people falling out of love. 
That's because they have no idea what love really is. Again, love is a commitment. It is a decision, and it is chief among all of these. When our marriages is characterized by love, it is reflecting the very image of God. And so what is needed for a good marriage? Simple. A good marriage needs two people who are devoted and satisfied by God and devoted and satisfied by one another. Marriage is not about giving and taking. Again, that is phileo love. That is, that is that love that we reserve for our good friends, our buddies. We can give and take there. Marriage is described by agape love. It is sacrificial. It is committed. It is holy. And it reflects the awesome love of the Father for the world. Over in John chapter 3 and verse 16, arguably one of the most well-known verses in the whole Bible. We read Jesus' words here when He says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's, that verse is corroborated by John the Baptist in just the very next few verses. If you want to skip down to verse 36 with me. John chapter 3 verse 36. See how John completely backs up everything Jesus just said. It says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who believes, uh, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life. The wrath of God abides on him. A very interesting parallel is created here between the believing and obeying. Similarly, Mark 16, 16, which tells, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he who disbelieves, or he that does not believe, he shall be condemned. To be saved, to gain eternal life, one must believe and one must obey. Confessing Christ is the Son of God, as Romans 10, verse 10 tells us. Repenting or turning away from their old life of sin, as Acts 17, verse 30 says. And being baptized, as Acts 2, and verse 38 says. For the remission, or so that sins can be washed away. And then 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58 says we are to remain steadfast. This morning you fall somewhere in between two descriptions. Saved or unsaved. Just like with our, with our marriages in Colossians, I think it's pretty clear to see which one of these categories is desired for us. And it is our desire here at Lake Street to help you become a saved child of God and to stay a saved child of God. If you desire to be washed of your sins, uh, we are here to help you. We're going to open just a moment, just very soon to this verse, or this song, number 359, Victory in Jesus. We obtain that victory by being saved. And we have that opportunity to be washed of your sins. There's water here. I would ask you, what, what keeps you from that? What hinders you from that? If you've already done so, you still desire to obtain this victory in Jesus, but you have not been steadfast. Rather, you maybe are like the church over in Sardis. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, he says I have, that you have a name. Sardis, you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. And the, the, the words that he says to them, or words that need to echo in our ears, he says, wake up. Wake up before it's everlasting too late. The Lord is coming. We wish to assist you in any way that we can to be ready for His return. If there's anything we can do, I encourage you, come forward right now as we stand and as we sing.